Hey, doll. Hey, doll. I'm your host, Paula. And I'm your host, Cynthia. And we are Dolls Dolls and and Doom. Doom. Okay, so Paula, I have this really crazy case for you today. Here at Dolls and Doom, we've really been trying to keep it like a good mix of some well-known cases and unknown cases, too, because we want to shine light to those. But our listeners really love these well-known cases that have been covered before that are just so interesting and have so many twists and turns. So today I'm going to bring you one of those. Today I'm going to tell you the story of the Coleman family murders. So on May 4th, 2009, just four days after his 11th birthday, Garrett Coleman asked his neighbor Vanessa if he and his younger brother Gavin could sleep over. You see, the very next day is Vanessa's son Brandon's ninth birthday, and the three boys wanted to have a sleepover to celebrate. So Vanessa told Garrett that he and nine-year-old Gavin could absolutely sleep over. She told him to go ahead and run home and grab some clothes and their book bags for school for the next day. Vanessa only lived four houses down from the Coleman family, so it really was no big deal to let him just run back and forth between the two homes in the small town of Columbia that was located in Monroe County, Illinois. A few minutes later, a very disappointed Garrett came back to Vanessa's house saying that his dad had said that tonight wasn't a good night and that he and Gavin had to be home by 8.30. So instead of staying over that night, the boys made plans to have a sleepover that coming Saturday to celebrate the recent birthdays. So the next morning, another neighbor on this same cul-de-sac, Detective Sergeant Justin Barlow of the Columbia Police Department, woke up to his phone ringing at 6.42 a.m. When he looked to see who was calling, he could see that it was his neighbor, Chris Coleman, who lived right next door. And Chris was the father to Garrett and Gavin. Now, Chris and Sergeant Barlow are not what you would consider friends. They are neighbors. They are really just acquaintances. They wave at each other when they see each other out in their yards. You know, they may exchange an occasional, hey, how are you? A little small talk. But they really didn't know each other. However, Detective Barlow is aware of the threatening emails and letters that Chris Coleman has been receiving. So Chris Coleman and his wife Sherry were a devout Christian couple, raising their two precious little boys, Garrett and Gavin. And Chris and Sherry actually met when they were both in the military. Chris was serving in the Marines and Sherry served as military police in the Air Force. And they actually met when they were both doing canine training in the military. Soon after they met, Sherry got pregnant. And because of Chris's religious beliefs, Chris and Sherry quickly got married. You see, Chris grew up in a very religious family. Both his father and his mother were pastors, and he had been raised to believe that having a baby outside of wedlock was not ideal. So in his family, marriage was really considered the right thing to do in this situation. 
Now, obviously, a shotgun wedding is not really an ideal start to a lifelong partnership, right? No, and nor is it romantic. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Not at all. I can imagine it adds a lot of pressure and tension. I just don't think it's a great way to start your life together. But Chris and Sherry did seem to love each other. So despite Chris's parents not being the biggest fan of Sherry, probably partially because she got pregnant, the couple decided that they were going to do everything in their power to make this marriage work. So Chris grew up in this really religious household. And after he left the military, he decided to get a job at Joyce Meyer Ministries, led by the famous television preacher Joyce Meyer, as part of her security team. And he was quickly able to work his way up to the head of security. So, Paula, do you know who Joyce Meyer is? It sounds familiar, but I'm not getting a face. Okay. So, as a pastor's daughter, I grew up listening to Joyce Meyer, and I actually really like her. I like her a lot. She's a pretty well-known television preacher. She's an author, a motivational speaker, and the president of Joyce Meyer Ministries. Now, Joyce Meyer has a whole lot of people who really love her and love her platform. But like anyone who is well-known, she also has some haters. She's been criticized as her ministry makes a lot of money. And for some reason, some people believe that if you're going to be a minister, you have to be poor. But if a minister does it, it's somehow slimy. This is how some people felt about the ministry. And that meant that it was not uncommon for her to be criticized and sometimes even receive threats. And in addition to some people not liking her financial status, other people didn't like her because there are some people who believe that women should not be vocal leaders in the church. And not only is she a woman, but she's got a pretty unfiltered aura. She just kind of tells it like it is, which again is something I love about her, but some people don't. So because of these reasons, it was necessary for Joyce Meyer to require a security team, especially when she traveled. And Chris Coleman was the head of that team. Now, apparently Chris got this job and it was a pretty good paying job. He made over $100,000 a year, but he got this job because his parents were family friends with Joyce. So Chris definitely had a bit of an in. Well, several months before Detective Barlow gets this early morning phone call from his neighbor, Chris, Joyce Meyer and Chris started getting some pretty creepy correspondence. So it all started on November 14th, 2008, when Chris got the first of seven threatening emails and the writer accused Joyce Meyer of preaching BS, although (laughs) they didn't... They weren't so nice about it? They weren't so nice about it. (laughs) I'm nice, so I'm not going to say it. This email went on to make some really terrifying threats, but here's the weird part. The threats were not to Joyce Meyer. Instead, this email threatened Chris Coleman and his whole family. The email said things like, quote, I will kill them all while they sleep, end quote. That's frightening. Terrifying. And what is even scarier is over the next several weeks and months, there were seven emails in total, all threatening Chris's family and telling Joyce to stop preaching. 
the emails would say that if Joyce didn't stop, someone was going to pay. And many of the emails said that Chris's family would be hurt while Chris was traveling for work with Joyce. The writer said that he or she knew Joyce's travel schedule and therefore they would know when Chris was out of town and his family would be left home alone. You want to hear the one of the scariest parts of all this? Yes. The email address that sent these messages was destroychris at gmail.com. Yikes. Right? Someone literally had to go and think of a name and get that domain. Right. It's it just... Okay, so several months went by, and these emails would keep coming until one day, instead of an email waiting in an online inbox, on April 27th, an actual letter showed up in the Coleman's mailbox. And this letter said, quote, This is my last warning. Your worst nightmare is about to happen. End quote. Now, this letter, Paula, had no stamp. Whoever was sending these messages knew where Chris and his family lived, and they came to his house, presumably in the middle of the night, and placed this letter in his mailbox. Okay, that's really frightening because not only is he just receiving these letters and threats, the person really knows where he lives. So if he wanted to, he or she could really go in and hurt or kill the family. Right, and not only knows where they live, they've been there. Yeah. They put something in his mailbox. After this, obviously, Chris is like totally freaked out and he decided enough was enough and he went to the local police department to file a report. And this is where Chris's neighbor, Detective Barlow, got involved. So obviously, because he's a police sergeant and a good neighbor, Detective Barlow offered to mount a surveillance video camera in one of his windows that had a clear view to the Coleman's house and specifically to their mailbox. The weird thing was, as soon as that camera went up, the letters stopped coming. Now this camera was still recording when Detective Barlow was woken up by this early morning phone call from Chris Coleman. On the phone, Chris told Detective Barlow, quote, My wife's not answering the phone. I need you to check on her and the kids. I'm on the JB bridge and I'll be there in about five minutes, end quote. So Barlow immediately got dressed. He called his dispatcher at the Columbia Police Department. He grabbed his weapon, his handcuffs, and his radio, and he ran out of his house and over to the Coleman's. He was standing on the front porch when fellow officer Jason Don John arrives. So the two officers surveyed the house, and despite their calling out and their knocking on the doors and the windows, no one answered. So, Cynthia, I know technically we're still in the middle of summer, but true Halloween fans know it's time to start thinking about our favorite time of year. That's right, you're reading my mind. It is never too early to plan your Halloween costume, and this year, I'm going to be using McCabe's costumes. Yes, they're the best. They're a family-owned company, which is amazing, because I love to support other small businesses. Me too, and they have high-quality costumes that ship right to your door. You know what else is great about McCabe's costumes? 
Not only do they have an amazing costume selection, they also carry super fun leggings, which is perfect because a lot of us are still working from home and we just want to feel comfortable, right? That's right. I love wearing cute leggings around the house or in the recording studio because not only am I super comfy, but I also really look cute. And McCabe's carries leggings with all kinds of super fun prints. I especially like the Hocus Pocus print, which has these adorable vintage style witches and pumpkins and ghosts all over them. That print totally has this Dolls and Doom retro vibe that you and I love. Yes, and the best part is you can do all of your shopping online and have your costume or comfy festive clothing and accessories delivered right to your door. Girl, you gotta love that. After this last year, I want everything delivered right to my front door. I know, me too. And right now, McCabe's is running a special offer for Dolls and Doom listeners. Just use the code DOLLS10 for 10% off your purchase. McCabe's Costumes also offers free shipping on orders over $35. Polly, you know what I love most about McCabe's Costumes? They actually give back to the community. They donate costumes to kids in need who would otherwise not have access to one. And if you, our listener, would like to participate in this awesome cause, you can make a donation directly on the website. Just hit the donate button right on the homepage and you can donate $30, which McCabe's costumes will then match. They match every single donation received. So with your $30 donation, two kids who would not have access to a costume will get one. And this year McCabe's also supported autism causes and their local Shriners Club. I love this so much. Not only are you buying something amazing for yourself, but you are giving back. What other costume shop does that? Exactly. So shop for your costumes or festive wear at McCabe's Costumes and feel good about making the world a happier place at the same time. Go right now and get your Halloween costume, festival wear, or comfy leggings at McCabe'sCostumes.com. That's M-C-C-A-B-E-S Costumes.com. As Officer Don John was looking at the back of the house, he noticed that a window was open and the screen was pulled out. So after calling for more backup, the officers climbed through the window into the basement. And as soon as they were inside the building, they were immediately stung by the strong odor of paint fumes. And as they reached the first floor, they saw the word punished written in red spray paint across the kitchen breakfast nook. They went on to see the message, I'm always watching, graffitied across the wall, and up the staircase was written the words, you have paid. Holy crap. I can only imagine how terrified they must be to find whatever it is that may be waiting for them upstairs. Yeah, seriously. So at 6.56 a.m., 13 minutes after calling his neighbor frantically worried about his family, Chris pulled into his driveway. He's told to wait outside while the officers finish clearing the house. Now I'm going to stop for a minute because some people question why it took 13 minutes for Chris to get from where he said he was on the bridge to his home because it literally was like less than a five minute drive. And if he was so frantic and so concerned 
about getting home that he couldn't even wait the five minutes that it would take him to get home and he felt the need to have his next door neighbor come check on the house. Why did it take him 13 minutes, more than twice as long as it should have, to get from the bridge where he said he was to his home? Yeah, that's very suspicious. So the officers, unfortunately, find both little boys in their beds, still covered by their blankets. And at first they looked like they were sleeping. But as the officers approached, they could see the little boys were gray and their bodies were stiff. Little nine-year-old Gavin had a, quote, rather disturbing, end quote, obscene message spray painted on his bed sheets and those bed sheets were still covering him it has never been released what that message was but we know something was literally spray painted across this little boy's body 31 year old sherry was also dead in her bed she had a black eye and ligature marks on her neck she had defensive wounds that indicated that she'd tried to fight off her attacker all three victims had been strangled by some type of rope or cord. It was at that point that Detective Barlow had to go tell his neighbor Chris what had happened to his family. They didn't make it, Chris. They didn't make it, he said. So Chris immediately sat on the ground sobbing before eventually pulling out his cell phone and calling his father. Now, later, the chief of police and police chaplain would sit with Chris and explain to him that his family had been killed. They didn't tell him how, just that they'd been killed. And Chris never asked what had happened. Now, soon after, Chris's father, Reverend Ron Coleman, came to Chris's house to comfort his son, and Joyce Meyer arrived soon after. So at this point, the media was all over the place. Chief Joe Edwards suggested that Chris go sit in the back of an ambulance to afford him a little privacy. And Chaplain Peters went and sat with him. And Chaplain Peters later testified that while inside the ambulance, Chris looked down at his own arms and saw some red marks and some scratches. And then he said out loud, how did that get there? And then Chris started banging his fists and arms on the gurney. So Chris was taken to the Columbia Police Department to be interviewed. And remember, Chris had just come home from the gym, so he was wearing a t-shirt with cut-off sleeves and gym shorts. And he told the officers that he was cold. So the officers left to go find him a blanket or something to cover up with. And when they came back into the room, Chris took the blanket, but he only used it to cover up his arms. Now, during this interview, someone else noticed these red scratches and these marks on his arms, and they asked where he came from. He told them that he must have gotten them when he was hitting the gurney in the ambulance. The gurney he hit after he noticed the marks. Right. So he told the officers that he'd gotten up at 5.30 that morning. He'd gone to the bathroom, he got dressed, and he left the house for the gym. And nothing about this was unusual. This was all part of his normal routine. He said that as he drove away from the house, he called Sherry to wake her up and get her going, and she didn't answer. So he went to the gym, and then he called her again on the way back, and again, she didn't respond. So that's when I called you, he said. And according to Chris, 
calling Sherry was also part of the normal routine. He would often give her a call to help her wake up in time, to get up, get the kids up, get them dressed, get the day started. So as officers are investigating and interrogating Chris, they ask all of the usual questions. They ask how the marriage was. Had the couple been fighting? Was there a history of any infidelity? Was everyone happy? And of course, Chris tells them that everything was great. I mean, yeah, they had a few problems. Once or twice, maybe they mentioned possibly separating or getting a divorce, but what couple doesn't go through that from time to time? Overall, things were great. But it wasn't until after he was pushed a little bit that he said to them, I do have this one friend who I talk to a lot, a woman named Tara Lentz, and she lives in Florida. He told authorities that it wasn't a sexual relationship. The two were just friends. But as officers checked his phone records and his computer records, they were going to see that, you know, he and Tara communicated quite a lot. Well, something about the way Chris was acting after losing his entire family in such a tragic way just wasn't sitting right with the police. And on top of that, when Detective Barlow reviewed the security cameras that clearly showed the Coleman house, absolutely no one was seen coming or going from the house that morning, except for Chris. Suspicion grew even further when the medical examiner said that the victims had died sometime between 11 p.m. and 3 a.m. But Chris said that his family was alive when he left for the gym that morning at 5.43, so somewhere the story is just not adding up. In an effort to dot all of the I's and cross all of the T's, a couple of days after Chris's family was murdered, investigators dispatched someone in St. Petersburg, Florida, where Tara lived, to go interview Tara. Can you imagine, Paula? She may have had an awful lot more to say on her relationship with Chris than Chris did. Well, that's what I'm hoping for. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you're going to get what you're hoping for, girl. According to Tara, not only were she and Chris having an affair, but they had actually set a date to get married. Holy cow. Right? I was not expecting that. (laughs) Tara showed the investigators text messages, which were very sexually explicit. She handed over her phone and her computer, and they had all kinds of nude photos that she and Chris had sent back and forth. There were even X-rated videos (gasps) that the couple had made of each other and with each other. Oh my gosh. So this was definitely an affair, and Chris had definitely lied about it. Tara told investigators that her relationship with Chris began in early November 2008, which, ironically, was just a couple of weeks before those strange emails started appearing. Now, Tara also said that the night before his family was murdered, Chris told her that he would be serving Sherry with divorce papers the next day. And that after his family ended up brutally murdered, Chris assured Tara that he had an alibi and he was definitely not responsible for the death of his family. Little side note here, he was going to serve Sherry with divorce papers, right? Right. There was never any record of him seeing an attorney. Not that you need an attorney. You can go online and do your own divorce papers. But there was never any evidence whatsoever that he had even taken a step to do any of this. On top of that, Chris texted Tara 
from the funeral of his wife and two little boys, telling her that he loved her and he missed her. Oh, what a classy guy. Oh my gosh. It just, ooh, it makes me so angry. Yeah. Even if he had nothing to do with any of it, you're at your wife and children's funeral. Yeah, you can't focus on that. I hate these slimy guys. I hate it. Okay, so Paula, as icing on top of this sweet little betrayal cake, would you like to guess how Chris met Tara? Uh, strip club? (laughs) I wish. Tara was Sherry's best friend from high school. No. Are you serious? (laughs) I promise you. Oh my gosh. That's why it would have been better had they just met at a strip club. That would have been a lot nicer. He just gets worse and worse. I know. And what kind of friend is that? Seriously. Like, who? would never do that to any no. of my friends. Oh, my gosh. With friends like that, you do not need enemies. Right. Oh, They were both slimy. Okay, so it turns out that since the beginning of their relationship, which they met on or around, like, November 4th or 5th, 2008, and according to Chris, they started dating sometime in November, sometime in December. Tara says they began dating early November. Since the beginning of their romantic relationship, every time Chris had to travel for work with Joyce, he would fly Tara out wherever he was staying so that they could have a rendezvous. Wow. (laughs) They fell in love, though, Paula. It was love, and they decided they wanted to spend the rest of their lives together. That's what you want to call it. Right. (laughs) So here was the big problem. Chris was worried that divorcing his wife and marrying his mistress could possibly cost him his job. And I can say that this could have been a valid concern. So Joyce Meyer Ministries is a religious organization. In a lot of situations, having an affair and divorcing your wife to marry your mistress is considered less than admirable behavior. I can see how doing so openly while holding a position as the head of a department at a Christian organization could possibly affect someone's job. But Joyce Meyer was actually deposed later, and she did say that though divorce by itself wouldn't have affected Chris's job, him having an extramarital affair may have. So the investigation initially focused on possible enemies of Joyce Meyer, and the police were able to locate people in the past who had threatened Joyce. But none of those people had anything to do with this crime. Given the fact that the time of death didn't add up with Chris's story and the security cameras didn't show any intruders, the evidence against Chris Coleman mounted. And things really started looking bad for Chris when the email address destroychris at gmail.com was found to have been created on Chris Coleman's own work computer. Whoa. So Chris said that obviously someone else must have used his computer to create this email address. Obviously. (laughs) Right? There is simply no other explanation, Paula. Right. Somehow, strangely, his co-workers, including Joyce Meyer herself, testified that Chris was the only person with access to that computer. You remember all the spray-painted graffiti throughout the house? Yes. Chris told authorities he didn't own any spray paint. However, police were able to find a receipt for the spray paint that was used, and it was bought just like a couple months earlier. Jeez. Now, could you possibly forget that you'd bought spray paint? You could. I don't know that that's one of those purchases that sticks out. Right. Something to think about. In addition to all of these findings, a handwriting analysis found that the graffiti on the walls was also 
done by Chris. So Coleman was arrested for the murders, and he was tried in Waterloo, which is the Monroe County seat, and he, of course, pled not guilty. Now, the murders were so awful, and citizens were in such an uproar over this alleged family annihilator that Chris had to wear a bulletproof vest whenever he was transferred anywhere. Wow, that's heavy duty. I know, it's interesting. If found guilty, Coleman would face possibly the death penalty. And during his trial, Chris was never called to testify. The trial lasted two weeks, and the evidence, such as the receipt for the paint, was mostly circumstantial. I remember hearing Nancy Grace describe circumstantial evidence this way once, and it just makes so much sense. But she said something to the effect of, if you're on your way to go inside of a building, and you're going to be inside for a couple of hours, and on your way inside, you see that the sun is shining, and the ground is dry, there isn't a cloud in sight, but then when you leave the building a couple of hours later, the sky is overcast, and the ground is wet, clouds cover the sun, even though you didn't see it rain with your own eyes, you can figure out that it did, in fact, rain, right? Yeah, that makes sense. Any reasonable person would be able to figure out that it rained. There would simply be no other explanation. Well, this is circumstantial evidence. You didn't see it happen. You can't really prove that it happened. But it obviously happened. So during the trial, the coroner, who carried out the autopsies, did not specify an exact time of death. But he did reiterate that the deaths occurred between 3 and 5 a.m., which was well before Chris left the house that morning, and therefore Chris did not have an alibi. Forensics found no DNA other than the DNA belonging to the Coleman family at the scene. The window in the basement had not been forced open. In fact, it looked as if it had been like left unlocked which is a strange thing to do when your family is getting a bunch of threats, right? Right. But of course, we also know that his family wasn't actually getting a bunch of threats. He was threatening his family. Right. The prosecution said the motive would have been for Chris Coleman's desire to get rid of his family to start a new life with his lover and the fear of being fired from his job in the event of a divorce. The jurors were able to view the sexual images and the videos of Coleman and his lover, Tara. During the trial, Tara testified for 20 minutes, detailing her six-month relationship with Coleman. She said they met in November 2008, they began a relationship soon after, and they made marriage plans. She said that she and Chris had traveled together to Hawaii and to Arizona, and that they had made plans to go on a cruise in June 2009. Paula, do you think Chris was found guilty or not guilty? God, I hope he was found guilty. He was found guilty. Okay, good. He was convicted on May 5th, 2011. He was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole, and he was incarcerated at the Pontiac Correctional Center and later transferred from Illinois to Wisconsin for security reasons. Here's the crazy part, though, or one of the crazy parts. So jurors said that even though they all felt like he definitely was guilty, they didn't necessarily feel like they had enough evidence to prove it. So when they first like took their initial vote, the majority said they felt like they had to go with not guilty. And it wasn't until they were examining the evidence again in the deliberation rooms that one of them noticed there was a timestamp on one of the photos of Chris and Tara. 
It was dated October 21st. And according to Chris and Tara, they didn't even meet till after that. They didn't start dating till at least a month after that. If Chris could lie about that, if Chris could lie about the start of their relationship, they believed he could lie about everything. So Coleman appealed, but an appeals court in 2015 upheld the life sentence. He filed another appeal in 2018, and this time he cited that the October 21st photo date stamp shouldn't have been used because it wasn't presented in court. The date stamp part wasn't presented at oh, trial. Okay, gotcha. It was only the photo, and that date stamp wasn't ever addressed, and so it can't really be brought into the jury's decision because they can only use what they learned during trial. And also, I don't know about you, but I know that back in the day when I would print photos out, the date stamp didn't always match up with the exact date that the photos were taken. Yes, I agree. So I do feel like if that is your big, if that's what, you know, had you nail the coffin closed, I don't really feel like that's a fair thing to use. I think he's guilty. Right. But if that was your big piece of evidence, to me, I can see why that wasn't, that shouldn't have been used. He also mentioned in the appeal the fact that there were other employees, even the CEO of Joyce Meyer Ministry had been divorced. So why would he be ostracized for having been divorced? That as a motive didn't make sense, seen as though you can be divorced and still continue to work there. Also, he said that after his family was murdered, he resigned from that job. So if all of this was to keep him from losing his job, then why would he immediately resign after his family had been killed? Right. It doesn't line up. Right. Finally, he said that there was a handprint and footprint found underneath and around that window, that open basement window. He said they were never, they never like went further with that testing to confirm where that came from, but it didn't match his shoes and it didn't match his handprints. So could it have been an intruder? And finally, there was some DNA found under Sherry's nails that was a partial match to him or possibly even the little boys, but it was only a partial sample. It could have belonged to somebody else. They should have done more with that, in his opinion. So those are the things that he brought up in his second appeal, and we'll see what happens with that. Coleman has always continued to plead not guilty, even in his prison interviews. He believes that his relationship with Tara is what really influenced the jury's decision. He said it's a small town and this made people not like him and therefore they think that he didn't get a fair trial just because people had this opinion of him already. He continued to maintain that his family was targeted due to his professional relationship with Joyce Meyer Ministries is what he believes, or at least what he says he believes is the reason why his family was killed. His parents are absolutely on his team. They do not think, or at least they say, that it is not possible that he murdered his wife and his children. And when asked their opinion on him having an affair, since it was so far removed from how he had been raised and what he allegedly believed to be right, um, his father said, well, that's easy to explain. Sherry wasn't meeting his needs. So he found someone who would... It's not funny. It's like so insane to me that that's why I laugh. I'm laughing because I'm uncomfortable. Can you imagine? So, of course, we're going to blame your dead daughter-in-law for her husband having an affair. 
I'm the first person to say, if you can only get those needs met through one person and that one person isn't giving it up, that's a recipe for disaster, in my opinion. But have a conversation. (laughs) You know what I mean? If there is no fix and the only fix is to go outside the marriage, end the marriage. Do what you want to do. Sow your oats. (laughs) Right. So I get that part, but to go behind your spouse's back and and then blame them that you're having an affair. That's that's gaslighting. That's the story of the Coleman family murders. What do you think? You think he did it? Yeah, absolutely. I do too. I mean, come on, with the emails and the letters and the lying and the affair. Here's what's so crazy to me, Paula. This reminds me so much of like Chris Watts and Scott Peterson. Oh, yeah. These family annihilators. But here's the thing. Chris Coleman was seen literally in the front yard playing catch the day before his kids were killed. Oh. Playing catch with those little boys. And so many times, these guys who kill their families, their wives and their children, I know all men are not like this, obviously. I know they're not. But there is something totally terrifying to me that you can have somebody who by all accounts is this great dad and all it takes is the promise of sex with a new girl to make them like kill their wives and their children. Yeah. First of all, it's one thing to kill your wife, but when you have children, what kind of person are you that you kill your own children? I I, I can't understand that. I don't know. But these guys, they, by all accounts, they're like good men. And then they just like snap one day. It's so scary to me. Just pack your bags and leave. Exactly. Truly frightening. Very. Truly frightening because there's no warning sign. It's not like, you know, they grew up hurting animals and setting fires and stuff. These are just normal guys who have something deep, dark, scary inside them that they are just literally able to keep hidden until one day they just snap, I guess. But this wasn't snapping. This was months and months and months of preparation. Yeah, he was planning. Right. It's terrifying. And I'm sure I know women do it too, so it's not just men. Family annihilators are normally men, just FYI. You got something for us for the time to kill? So our mutual friend Joe texted me a message with this story. I love Joe. He's awesome. Hi, Joe. Last year, a man in Florida heard a noise in his home around 1.30 a.m. He grabbed his handgun off the dresser and went to check it out. He saw a shape in the dark and fired, later realizing he had just shot his pregnant wife. (gasps) Oh, my gosh. Martin County Sheriff's Office came to the scene and found the man outside with his other child saying his life is over. He told police it was an accident. He thought his wife was an intruder. His wife, who was shot in the head, was pronounced dead in the hospital. She was six months pregnant. Mm. The good news is the doctors were able to save the baby. Police feel it was nothing more than a tragic accident. However, they are still investigating. They just want to make sure to do their job correctly and take all the necessary steps to prove the husband is telling the truth. They also urge people with guns in the home to be careful, especially when there are family members in the house. The names were kept private from the article, and I only wanted to tell the story as a reminder to please be careful and even have a plan. I'm sure in the moment it's hard to think clearly, especially if you really think it's a life and death situation, but maybe sit down with your spouse and come up with a plan. Like, if you hear a noise, the first thing you do is look in the bed to make sure your spouse is there. And check the kids' room first before you take action. If you're the one getting up in the middle of the night, maybe turn on the hall or kitchen light so you can be recognized. There are all kinds of websites on safety for gun owners. I understand people have guns to protect the family. Educate yourself on gun safety. I've mentioned before, my dad was law enforcement. There were always guns in our house. They were always properly locked up. 
we had no access to them. But my dad is like a stickler when it comes to gun safety. Every gun you ever touch, you treat it like it's loaded. There's just no playing around. Right. I remember my dad telling me, even from being a kid, you don't understand how many times people will shoot their own family members because in the moment they panic, they hear a noise, they just shoot. Yeah, they act. Yeah, and it's their kid who came home late. Or their, like in this situation, their wife who got up to get a drink of water or whatever. You do not shoot unless you see on the other end who you are shooting. And that is a fear of mine having kids. And I just think that's like a huge valid fear. And that happens a lot. Unfortunately. Too, way too often. So please, if you are going to have a gun, you need to be well-versed in the use, the safety of it. You have got to be comfortable. And that is as much about not being trigger happy as anything else. So that's scary. That's awful. That's sad. Yeah, it is. But at least the baby lived. That is true. But that poor man, he must feel terrible. Oh, of course. I mean, you... Oh, yeah. No, that's just awful. Sorry for the downer. <laughs> Thanks for the downer, Joe Sorry. and Paula. <laughs> Jeez. <laughs> <laughs> Well, hey, everybody, thank you so much for listening. We appreciate your comments. Like us, follow us. Hey, if you'll go to Apple Podcasts and leave us a comment, you'll be our new best friend. It really helps to put our show in front of new listeners. We love to bring you new content, and we will keep doing that. If you send in a case suggestion, we are working on them. Well, we hope to bring you a new episode every Friday. And we'll catch you next time. All right. Bye. Bye.